It is once again time for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton. Here we are this week in the confessional corner. We're looking at Augsburg Confession, article number 26 on the distinction of meats. This month we're going to look at the first half of it, and then next month we'll look at the second half of the article. But the article on the distinction of meats is one of the longest in the Augsburg Confession. This is a most applicable article for the 16th century Reformation. There's a great law basis placed upon fasting and repentance. However, Melanchthon points out the true understanding of fasting and repentance in the light of Christ's gospel. In this article, there is no condemnation of fasting as a spiritual exercise. As Luther says himself, fasting is certainly a good outward exercise. There is, however, the condemnation of believing that you merit grace before God because you fasted. Law's tyrannical reign rears its ugly head, not only in the exercise of fasting, but in all human traditions that have been brought into the church. However, the law should not reign in the usage of spiritual exercises. While there should be encouragement to give up an activity or food for the season of Lent, as we're getting ready to go into it next week, this should be done only through the gospel proclamation of our freedom in Christ. In the Orthodox communions, the law brings about the abstinence of almost everything in Great Lent. Two Sundays before Lent begins, they celebrate Meat Fair Sunday, the beginning of the fast for meats. The Sunday before Lent, they celebrate Cheese Fair Sunday, the beginning of the fast from cheese. Once Lent begins, the individual fasting from their own chosen food or activity begins. The law brings out this as a requirement for theosis, the journey towards becoming like God. In the Orthodox understanding of Great Lent, the gospel does not predominate the teaching. The gospel takes the focus off the Christian and places it on Christ. While fasting is a godly and biblical practice, the medieval church allowed many other traditions to creep into the church. These traditions have obscured the commandments of God. In fact, most of them were elevated above the Bible itself. The Roman Catholic Church today even contends that the church tradition is at least equal to the Bible. Many of these traditions, especially the religious orders of monks and nuns, were elevated to be seen as having more saving power than Jesus' death on the cross. Grace was seen to be merited and sins were forgiven by these. But the traditions cause more harm to the Christian conscience than they did good. But the Lutheran reformers did not throw out every tradition because some were bad. Very many traditions are kept on our part which conduce to good order in the church, as it says in paragraph 40 we'll look at next month. Listed among these are the liturgy of the Mass and the cycle of the church year. These are optional things to be used in the church, but they are presented by the reformers as good for the comfort of the Christian conscience. These are kept for their gospel value. There is no law demanding that one liturgy is to be said over and against all others, or that every congregation must celebrate every saint's day in the church here. These are given to us freely so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might shine upon us and comfort us in our time of need and predominate in our teaching. So let's take a look at the first half of this article. Article 26, The Distinction of Meats, uh, starting in paragraph 1. 
Not only the people, but also those teaching in the churches have generally been persuaded to believe in making distinctions between meats and similar human traditions. They believe these are useful works for meriting grace and are able to make satisfaction for sins. From this there developed the view that new ceremonies, new orders, new holy days, and new fastings were instituted daily. Teachers in the church required these works as a necessary service to merit grace. They greatly terrified people's consciences when they left any of these things out. Because of this viewpoint, the church has suffered great damage. The church, by the 16th century, had suffered great damage from teaching that you must earn your salvation through things like distinguishing between meats and fasting. Melanchthon spends paragraphs 4 through 17 illustrating this damage in three ways. So we look at the first way, paragraphs 4 through 7. First, the chief part of the gospel, the doctrine of grace and of the righteousness of faith, has been obscured by this view. The gospel should stand out as the most prominent teaching in the church in order that Christ's merit may be well known and faith, which believes that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, may be exalted far above works. Therefore, Paul also lays the greatest stress on this article, putting aside the law and human traditions, in order to show that Christian righteousness is something other than such works. Romans 14, 17. Christian righteousness is the faith that believes that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. But this doctrine of Paul has been almost completely smothered by traditions, which have produced the opinion that we must merit grace and righteousness by making distinctions in meats and similar services. When repentance was taught, there was no mention made of faith. Only works of satisfaction were set forth, and so repentance seemed to stand entirely on these works. The proper doctrine of grace and righteousness had been obscured by the medieval church. Anything that stands in the way of justification by grace through faith in Christ should be removed from the church. And this is what Melanchthon talks about in this article. These are the things that were removed. We'll move on to his second reason in paragraphs 8 through 11. Second, these traditions have hindered God's commandments because traditions were placed far above God's commandments. Christianity was thought to stand wholly on the observance of certain holy days, rites, fast investments. These observances won the exalted title of the spiritual life and the perfect life. Meanwhile, God's commandments, according to each one's vocation or calling, were without honor. These works include a father raising his children, a mother bearing children, a prince governing the commonwealth. These were considered to be worldly and thus imperfect works, far below the glittering observances of the church. This error greatly tormented people with devout consciences. They grieved that they were held in an imperfect state of life, as in marriage, in the office of ruler, or in other civil services. They admired the monks and others like them. They falsely thought that these people's observances were more acceptable to God. Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is what had happened before Jesus came into the flesh. This is what happened in the medieval church because of the incursion of unnecessary traditions that have gone to burden people's consciences. And so people thought that they were less Christian because they weren't having the spiritual life 
of monks and nuns. That was reason two. Now we have reason three in paragraphs 12 through 17. Third, traditions brought great danger to consciences. Again, going back to the conscience of the believer. It was impossible to keep all traditions, and yet people considered these observances to be necessary acts of worship. Gerson writes that many fell into despair, and that some even took their own lives, because they felt that they were not able to satisfy the tradition. All the while, they had never heard about the consoling righteousness of faith and grace. We see that the academics and theologians gather the traditions and seek ways to relieve and ease consciences. They do not free consciences enough, but sometimes entangle them even more. The schools and sermons have been so occupied with gathering these traditions that they do not even have enough leisure time to touch on Scripture. They do not pursue the far more useful doctrine of faith, the cross, hope, the dignity of secular affairs, and consolation of severely tested consciences. Therefore, Gerson and some of other theologians have complained sadly that because of all this striving after traditions, they were prevented from giving attention to a better kind of doctrine. Augustine forbids that people's consciences should be burdened. He prudently advises Januarius that he must know that they are to be observed as things neither commanded by God nor forbidden for such others' words. So many of the traditions were hanged over the layperson's head as they were made to feel obligated to keep all of them. All they were given was the necessity of following these traditions. They were never told about Christ's righteousness for them. They were only told about how doing all these things, keeping all these traditions, made you righteous before God. Their consciences were burdened greatly because of these things. And consciences are still burdened greatly by those who teach that we must do things in a certain way and that everything must be the same. So Melanchthon finishes up our section this month in paragraphs 18 through 20. Therefore, our teachers must not be regarded as having taken up this matter rashly or from hatred of the bishops, as some falsely suspect. There was a great need to warn the churches of these errors that arose from misunderstanding the tradition. The gospel compels us to insist on the doctrine of grace and the righteousness of faith in the churches. This cannot be understood if people think they merit grace by observances of their own choice. The reformers didn't teach this article rashly or out of hatred and spite for the Roman theologians. They sought to remove everything that kept people away from Jesus, that kept them afraid of Jesus, running away from him instead of running toward him as their Savior and Redeemer. This is the problem when we get bogged down in traditions and the way things have always been. In the 21st century, we see that some of the things that may have worked way back in the day do not work now because there is a completely different worldview. So there are always people coming up with new ideas, new programs, new strategies, getting rid of old traditions that no longer work, that no longer have any meaning to them other than we are slaves to them because this is what we have always done. That was the point the Roman church was in in the 16th century. That's where it is still now, today. But the reformers and the Reformation itself, not just in the Augsburg Confession, but throughout the 500 years 
since Luther's posting of the 95 Theses, since he came onto the stage as a major theologian that needed to be wrestled with, this has taught us that we must always wrestle with the theology around us. Even our own theology of, well, this is the way I like it. This is the way I've always done it. This is the way my grandparents and my great-grandparents did it. That was great. But we also must realize that 2020 America is different from 1990 America, from 1980 America, from 1950 America. No, not saying we have to change with the tide and just accept what society has, but we have to take that into account when we go and do our jobs of making disciples of all nations. That we must go and not just hold on to things because this is, this is our heritage. Heritage is great. I'm not wanting to get rid of the heritage of the Lutheran Church at all. That's why I do Confessional Corner in the first place, to keep us grounded in that heritage. But to remind you that the heritage we have, the Augsburg Confession and all the rest of the confessions we have in the Book of Concord, all came because they needed to be said at that time. There are things that need to be said now. And that's what we need to be about doing as the church. This is what I want to leave you with. Not the law that you must go and do this. But the freedom in that we do this because we are simply trying to advance the message of Christ's righteousness and the grace he gives us through that righteousness that brings us into the Father's family as his beloved children and has promised us everlasting salvation. That's all for this month for the Confessional Corner. I look forward to talking to you again next week as we dig deeper into Exodus 18 and 19. But until then, I encourage you to continue to listen to the Moments of Meditation. Mormon Mondays are coming up next month. Majoring in the Minors start next week. So we have plenty of things to talk about as we wrestle with theology. And as you wrestle, I pray for God's richest blessings on you. Amen.